Get ready to ride along for another exciting episode of No Driving Gloves, where Derek, John, and Will will use over 75 years combined industry knowledge to bring you a bare-knuckled view on the collector car hobby. So let's get rolling. Hello, everybody. We're back again for another episode of No Driving Gloves. I'm going to go ahead and apologize. We've had a rough couple of months here to start the year, missed a couple of weeks of episodes, some bad editing, uh, some technical glitches, uh, working on trying to improve some of that. Be honest, a lot of it's fallen on my end. I've uh, had a rough start to the year, been really busy, pulled about 18 different directions, but I actually see some light at the end of the tunnel and uh, should be able to put the effort back into the podcast that's needed and uh, give uh, Will and Derek the respect that they need for taking some time out to talk to everybody every week. So I'll apologize to them and I'll apologize. We fired Will. So oh, he's yeah. Not well, I, we fired Will. So he's not yeah, here. I was going to mention that, you know, even though Will can't hear this apology and I doubt if he'll listen to the po- this podcast to find out that I did apologize, but too bad. But like Derek just said, Will isn't here tonight. He's uh, picking up uh, parts for the the Dart, I guess, for some repairs. And he's in Detroit. And I think there's probably a car show or something going on this weekend in Detroit. We don't have Will tonight, but we do have Derek sitting in on the other end here to kind of make this not a monologue and me bore you all by myself like I normally do. So what's going on with you, Derek? Anything special? Anything happening or... No, not really. Um, just, uh, like you said, it's been a busy start to a pretty crazy year and, uh, trying to get things all lined up and get a, uh, you know, path of normalcy going, I guess. But, uh, no, it's, it's been good. Work's been good. Things are moving along and, uh, just trying to make the best out of, out of every day. I think that's all we can ask for. Again, to the listeners, I apologize. While I'm talking to the listeners, I'm going to hit the beginning of the show as opposed to asking at the end. You know, just check us out on social media. We're probably most active on Instagram at uh, No Driving Gloves. Uh, do some posting there, some photographs. We're going to get a little bit better there. Also, check us out on Facebook and send us some messages on Facebook, some topic ideas, some suggestions, and be sure to let your friends know about the podcast. Uh, we're really going to make a push keep trying. We're slowly building a listenership, but I kind of want to explode here in the first half of the year. So we're ready for some of the big stuff we have planned uh, coming up this summer and rolling into the fall. But that's enough promotion. And I guess talking about the future, since Derek and I tout ourselves as automotive historians a little bit with museum careers and pretending to know a little bit about the history and wanting to preserve the history and we don't have our uh, cut them and chuck them guy with us tonight. We thought we would peruse a little bit of automotive history, talk about automobiles through the years and the development. And when Derek threw out this topic suggestion, I said, oh, let's go ahead and do that. We'll hit like the the big, the key points in automobiles, 1886, 1903, 1908. Then I gave him a big long list and he came back with, what was that, Derek? Where are we actually going to start? Because I thought the car was invented in 1886, or the automobile by a little guy named Daimler Ben or Daimler. Well, you know that's what most people think, but uh, I'm I'm a snob. I'm you know one of those people that just can't let it go, and I have to go all the way back to 1770 and talk about Nicholas Joseph Cugnot. 
over in France. So that's where we're going to start, John. So we'll start, what is that, 116 years before I wanted to? Before the United States was the United States? Uh, yeah. Let's go. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about Joseph and, you know, educate me a little bit or I I know the name and I, I know some legend about that. And at least we're not going back to Da Vinci and his tank drawings. Well, I, I was going to drop Da Vinci's name while I was talking about Cugnell, but, you know, I, I guess you just ruined it. Um, but seeing you brought up Da Vinci, we do have to probably acknowledge that Da Vinci had some ideas of self-propelled vehicles that have been found in his journals and uh, including, um, you know, uh, basically an idea for a helicopter, um, uh, probably the most interesting, a self-propelled spring-powered uh, three-wheeled mine cart, um, which actually is quite successful. They've built replicas of it and it does actually work. It was programmable to make turns through the mines. Uh, it was quite interesting, but as far as we know, that was never built. So I always like to start talks about automotive history at uh, the 1769-1770 time period in France, where the French military was looking for an idea to carry their largest cannons into battle. And Nicolas Joseph Cugnot, um, seeing the early ideas of steam-powered boats on the rivers in France uh, decided that he could probably come up with a way to propel some type of what they would call a fardier. Um, I, I don't speak French, so I apologize to anyone who does that probably thinks that should be pronounced a different way. That basically a, a fardier is a type of <clears throat> wagon or a you know a, a vehicle to carry things, and uh, Nicholas Cugnot uh, designs and and I think this is interesting in the history of automobiles because he designs a three wheeled vehicle, one single front wheel, two ve- uh, two wheels in the back. But the driven wheel is the front single wheel. So the the first self-propelled vehicle is actually a front wheel drive, uh, which I I find kind of interesting. But it's a a steam-powered, as I say, two-cylinder and has a a very interesting ratcheting mechanism that actually drives the front wheel. And as I say, this is all an experiment to figure out a way to carry the heaviest cannons within the French Uh, military arms uh, equipment that they had. And he actually builds this vehicle. They do some test runs of it. One of the test runs actually happens to also involve the first self-propelled vehicle accident in history because the vehicle somehow gets out of control, Uh, likely that the steam valve got pushed open too far picked up more speed than was expected. And instead of trying to control the situation, the person who was driving it at the time actually jumped off the vehicle and the vehicle ran into a a brick wall surrounding one of the forts at at the French military post where they were testing this vehicle. 
Although that didn't end the idea of this, uh, the French Revolution, Revolution in the early 1770s did end the idea of the Cugno uh, being a vehicle that would carry large cannons into battle. So that's really where we get the first self-propelled vehicle kind of known to man. Now, did the fresh French Revolution in that because of the war distracting and pulling resources away, and then it for, oh, was just kind of forgotten, or did the uh, French Revolution prove to be the ultimate test, and it actually turned out to be a dismal failure and went away and forgotten? Uh, actually, it was the 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 real end of it was that after the French Revolution, of course, you now have uh, new leaders in power, and they no longer had an interest in this type of military equipment being utilized. Although it was not the most successful, it's quite a slow-moving vehicle, and can only make it a short distance before it needs to stop to build up a head of steam again because it uses uh, what would be called a kettle-type boiler. So did I bore you enough with that one? No, I mean, that that was a good uh, four minutes. and uh, <clears throat> But it, 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 it really leans to the proof and the discussion that carries on about a lot of technology. And something that I've had recent conversations on because, and no offense, but we haven't had a major world war or major conflict in a long, long period of time. And there's two things that drive technology. One uh, is porn, and the other one is war. And both of those are the biggest influencers of technology over, over the course of history. Uh, war probably even to a bigger degree. And here we are discussing war in the 1770s and how it uh, helped create or the, the the looming of war helped create the motorized vehicle, which lends us to where we are, are today, you know, to jump ahead instantly 300 years. But obviously we're 1770, 1780, and now the technology has slightly been forgotten. When do you think it picks up again? Is it do we jump a hundred years before somebody gets this novel idea, or where do we start hitting it again as the eighteen hundreds in or yeah, it doesn't really take that long for people to catch on to this idea of self propelled vehicles. I mean here in the u s uh yeah, we start seeing early reports of self propelled vehicles. Uh, in in the early 1800s, around 1805, and people are actually kind of playing around w with essentially the the same idea because, of course, the internal combustion engine understanding isn't there yet. We're we're really working with steam technology, and they're basically mounting small steam engines onto carriages, horse-drawn carriages, and making them move. But the real jump in technology doesn't happen until that 1886 date that you're mentioning, John. Your statement in that is the theory is it just slowly builds and technology uh, is kind of a slow evolution. I would say kind of the computer in the 40s to the computer that we have today and the iPad sitting next to me is it's just a slow progression. We don't know where this is actually going to end. 
but the 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 automobile there over a hundred years grew into what and i I always get it wrong uh, I know you know we have Daimler and Benz all about the same point in time cars and self propelled motorcycles and things like that and we we've talked about the uh, pat motor wagon and we've uh, done some sound clips and some videos on the Instagram and Facebook pages I guess going by since you're narrating the very early days of the car that's where we evolved to and why they may not have actually produced the first of that you know Edison didn't actually invent the light bulb and you know there's always these little things like that uh, Wright brothers weren't the first to fly but they were the first to be able to market it and, and do it in a way that everybody took notice when it happened. And that sounds like a little bit about how the 1886 motor wagon came about. Am, am I incorrect? Am I right? Am I kind of, sort of, maybe? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really the development of the the propulsion technology, uh, if, you know, if we, if we can use that term. But you go from steam technology, which is, as we kind of know from from history, it's it's a very good technology. I mean, it's it's very powerful. It's very you can go very fast with steam. It has its limitations. It has, you know, you have to have water to boil to create steam. Uh, you have to have a water tank if you're not condensing there's there's all kinds of things that can uh, you know really reduce the kind of like the electric car reduce the range of a steam-powered vehicle whereas when the internal combustion engine really gets perfected in the you know 1880s that 1870s 1880s period and someone like Gottlieb Daimler really perfects the idea and kind of decides to do a test vehicle with the Daimler Reitwagen, you know, he's starting to make these two technologies blend together. The idea of a self-propelled steam vehicle, uh, but now let's use a little more efficient and internal combustion engine that can do a little more than the steam engines of the time could do and prove that it actually works. And the interesting thing with Daimler and Benz is they're both building their vehicles at essentially the same exact time in 1885 into 1886, and neither one of them know the other one. So you've got Gottlieb Daimler building a essentially what becomes the first uh, internal combustion motorcycle in history, and you have Carl Benz building the patent Motorwagen, the first patented self-propelled vehicle in the world, basically the forefather of the modern automobile and neither of them knew what the other one was doing. And eventually they became really one of the greatest partnerships in automotive history where Benz would start using Daimler engines in his vehicles to create uh, one of the most successful early automobiles uh, of the 20th century. And I I also want to mention, John, that that a lot of these vehicles, and I, I want to talk about specific ones tonight because I didn't mention it with with the uh, the Cugnot, but you can still most of these vehicles that we're going to talk about, you can still go see them. Um, the original Fardier de Cugnot is actually in um, the Museum of Art in Paris, 
a fully operational exact replica is at the Tampa Bay Auto Museum in Florida. So you can actually, if you're in the U.S., go see an exact operational replica. If you get a chance to go to Paris, you can see the original still in a museum. And, you know, of course, with things like the Benz and the, the Daimler, those are, there's replicas that, that Mercedes-Benz has built of those vehicles at a number of museums where you can actually go see these things. And in some cases at like Henry Ford Museum at, at the old car festival, we actually operate them so people can see them in operational form. Uh, so, you know, I think it's key that as we go through this too, we kind of point out where these vehicles are because, I mean, it's kind of interesting to me that our listeners could actually go see these things and understand how they worked. And that's kind of an interesting statement. I didn't realize that I, I knew we had some of the, you know, the, uh, and even though you've said it 40 times in the last 15 minutes, I forget the name, but the Tampa Auto Museum actually has one. And uh, uh, be honest, a big portion of our listener base is based in the Southeast. So it's really not an unlimited or, or unreasonable, excuse me, unreasonable trip for a listener to run down and take advantage of that and, and see, the, see the vehicle, you know, oh, I got to go to Paris. That's a whole other story. You know, and most of us just can't hop on a, you know, plane and go to Paris and check out a car, but go to Tampa for the weekend. You can probably even sell that to the uh, girlfriend or wife, or if you're uh, the other way to sell that to the husband or whatever, you can go down to Tampa and, um, excuse me, but Cigar City and, you know, hang out and in, enjoy a car and learn a little bit about history and be able to smell and hear. And I think that's uh, jumping current day. I think your museum and my museum, both the same way, having the racetracks and that and the ability to run and operate what we have so people can be exposed. That's what people like to see. We're all about the, um, you know, there's the the why, how and everything. We, we want to see the stuff. We want to know what makes it work and we want to hear it and see it work. So, yeah, if we can point out as we go on, and I'm sure you're going to fill in a lot of cars between 1886 and the where I want to jump to in history, where does the, um, where does this, um, partnership, I guess I'll throw in there that we, we at the, uh, Barber Museum in Birmingham, Alabama do have a replica of the original 1886, uh, Daimler motorcycle. Um, so, you know, it, it's not that that far reaching for you to go visit and see that. And we have some of the replicas of some of the earliest motorcycles, um, steam powered motorcycles. Um, and I'm drawing a blank on the 1880 or 1898. Maybe by the time we get to 1898, I'll have remembered it. Uh, motorcycle, which basically is an internal combustion engine, but it, it's crazy in its layout that basically it, it's a cutaway internal combustion engine because the the connecting rods are also the drive shaft, the connecting, you know, the pistons up at the front where the motor would be. And the connecting rod goes back and drives the crankshaft, which is also doubles as the rear axle of the motorcycle and things like that. So uh, the technology that. Are you, is that the, is that the Wolf Mueller? Yes, that is. We, we have a. Yes. We have a replica of it and we have a smaller you know, kind of a cutaway exploded 
uh, three-dimensional model of the, the the whole drive system. And it's just kind of fascinating how, that all of this stuff that we think of our motors all buttoned up nice and tight, keeping all the oil and lubricants, in, you know, inside that, you know, the cylinders are exposed to the real world. You know, I build a motor now and I got to worry about cleaning and all the dirt that gets into a cylinder. You look at the Wolf Mueller and this, the cylinder is exposed. I mean, if it rains, it gets wet. If dust gets in it, dust gets in it. It's just a really radical thing in the way the thinking and the the way, you know, technology was and the development of it's, you know, it's a cool progression to see. We also have the um, motor, uh, motorcycle or the penny farthing bike that was written at the beginning of the movie Wild Wild West with Will Smith from the 1880s. Then, you know, it's a whole fake thing, but it was I can't think of the actor's name that rode that, but everybody thinks it's, it was a real motorcycle, but it wasn't. But it's a big penny farthing with a motor on it. And it's just kind of a humorous jab at history. So got to make fun of history, right? If you can't laugh about it, people aren't going to get, you know, it, you do what you do, what you can to get people in the door and make them learn about it. Let's just put it that way. Exactly. You got to make and that's the thing. You got to make history fun. Unlike this podcast tonight. No. But I think I think that goes back to what we're talking about, John, which is, you know, having these operational replicas um, operating some of the original cars, if if it's safe. It, it makes it fun and it makes it educational. I, I think that's both what you and I enjoy with this is, and, you know, we, we've talked about it before, we operate these things responsibly, but it's a huge part of the education of the early automobile is seeing them run. Because if, if you don't see it, you don't hear it, you don't feel it, you don't smell it, you don't experience that, you can't understand it. And... That's why these these cars are so significant and important to you know the development of the automobile and and getting people to understand where in the world you know this automobile that we drive today really got its start. And to get us back on track a little bit, where were we going from 1886 in technology? Huh. What was that, John? Sorry, I was saying uh, get us a little bit back on track. Where? Where do we jump to in our timeline from 1886? Where where are we going to land? Since I've obviously just took us off the the rails a little bit. <laughs> well, I mean, I think uh, 1886. You know, we're in in Germany. France, of course, is already in the game. Um, so you have kind of the French automobile industry and the German automobile industry leading the way. But then here in the U.S. in 1896, you see a lot of uh, forward movement in the auto industry, the, the American auto industry with the Duryea brothers building their first uh, 13 vehicles that are all identical. So you have the first mass production of automobiles in the U.S. coming out of Massachusetts. And I'll, I'll throw it out there that the only surviving of those 13 is at Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. You can actually still see that car. And of course, 1896 is the year that Henry Ford builds his first automobile, the quadricycle, which leads him into uh, a, a number of early automobile companies prior to Ford Motor Company. But of course, in 1903, introduces Ford Motor Company. And uh, starts, obviously, what we all know today is one of the biggest automobile companies um, really in the game. 
And John, you know, on your list, 1903 was one of the years you highlighted. And I'm, I'm sure I, I know why. And that is because not only does Ford Motor Company start in 1903, but we see the first vehicles actually drive across the United States from coast to coast, going from California to New York, um, which is really a big deal because now we've proven that automobiles, these self-propelled vehicles, horseless carriages, whatever you want to call them, are capable of driving completely across the United States and is leading us to a whole new way of connecting this country from coast to coast that's not the railway, you know, not the railroads. And I think that's a big turning point in the at least the American auto industry. Now, actually, I had the 1903 on there because of the Ford Motor Companies, but I'll, I'll take your credit in uh, the, the coast-to-coast racing. And also, I think one of the most famous cars of the early portion of the century that, you know, comes up a lot uh, is the 1903 curved dash Oles. Uh, you know, it's kind of the creation of the Oldsmobile co- uh, motor or company right about that date too. So a lot of things, a lot of turn, you know, happenings will throw a little bit. I know this is a collector car podcast, but 1903 was kind of the advent of the Harley Davidson motor com- uh, motorcycles. Uh, it's kind of the beginning of the Indian motorcycles right about that period in time too. So you see a lot of innovation and technology happening right there at the turn of the century. A lot of people getting into the game, a lot of people get, you know, failing at the game. So a lot, a lot of stuff at Oh three. And of course my, the next date I had picked and uh, stop me if I'm wrong is I threw a Oh eight, excuse me. Oh eight out again, because that was being car wise, the introduction of the model T and that, changed the world as the world knew it. Uh, there's no denying that the, the car was one of the most, if not the most influential technologies of the uh, 20th century. Yeah, I'll, I'll completely agree with you there. You know, October of 1908, Henry Ford introduces the Model T. Uh, and although it's not immediately the car that will change the world, that that happens probably at our next important date, which would be 1914, when the late 13, when the assembly line comes along. But 1908, it, it, it's interesting that we have these years that you think might only have one significant turning point, like 1908, the Model T's introduced. Well, 1908, we also have to remember, is the year of, of the very famous, very legendary New York to Paris race. And this is a race from New York to Paris, as the title would tell you. But it's the first time automobiles attempt to drive around the world. They successfully do it. A a few of them, not the entire pack that started the race, but most famously, uh, the American car built in Buffalo, New York, the Thomas Flyer, is the car that crosses the finish line first in Paris. And yeah, we, we talk about it being an around-the-world race, and, and in some cases, myself, I question that because, well, it's only New York to Paris. So not all of the cars drove around the world, at least completely, except for the Thomas Flyer. Because the Thomas Flyer actually left New York. It actually Well, it actually left 
the plant in Buffalo, New York. They drove the car to New York, then drove the New York to Paris race, won the, won the race in Paris, left Paris, drove to the docks in France, put it on a boat and shipped it back to New York and then drove back to Buffalo. So they literally, as, as far as I know, I've never found another case of a car driving around the world before 1908, but the Thomas Flyer is the first automobile to completely drive around the world from one point to back to the same point. And that happens in 1908. So we have another major kind of milestone in automotive technology, proving that an automobile can drive around the world successfully. Yeah, I'm trying to remember a story I heard about Bill Hara many years ago, because he, he, uh, during his life, uh, and actually up until the point of his passing, owned the Thomas Flyer. Uh, You know, he was the caretaker for it, because, again, we'll use the old analogy that with collector cars and historic automobiles, we don't own them. We just care for them until the next owner gets them. Uh, there was some discuss. He was at a car show, and I want to say he might have been in Paris or something. And they were discussing it and got into a fight over the tire size on the Thomas Flyer. And he he had this argument, had this argument, had this argument. And he showed up at breakfast the next morning. Maybe it wasn't Paris or something, but he showed up at the breakfast the next morning with a Polaroid of the tire and said, no, I was right. This is the tire size because he had flown home over overnight, took pictures of his car and came back to win the argument. It's just one of those cute little I, I, I have, you know, I have more money than you billionaire stories. I don't know where I heard the story, why I heard the story, but it's one of the little cute stories about uh, Bill Hara that I remember. And, you know, I, I was very young when he was um, he was alive and when he passed away. But he, he just seems to be kind of the for he seems to be kind of the cool car collector. I mean, there's a lot of negatives I can say about him, too, in the car collecting world and stuff that he created. But he also seemed to have a little bit of uh, um, humor and uh, I'm right about him, which good or bad, I kind of admire in a guy. So, But we're going to jump from the uh, 1908 to is 14 there our next year? Did we have anything that really slid in there in, you know, 12 or so? You know, this is kind of cool talking this far back into, you know, automotive history and getting in depth that might be a little boring to the listeners and you know, we'll, we'll make this a little bit of a short episode, and then Derek and I will probably hit a few more episodes like this over the, you know, next 10 or 15 epi- you know episodes. And we have Will there. Derek and I might bring this up to kind of maybe where Will can start jumping in and knowing some some of that and uh, where is he at Hot Rods. But So is it 14? And uh, Yeah, Will doesn't, Will doesn't jump into this until post-World War II, so. Well, he gets into some of those 32s, but. I don't know if that counts and flathead V8s, which we'll, yeah. which we'll get to maybe not this episode. Maybe that's the next episode. Maybe we'll get this up to, you know, world war one or just post world war one and pick it up from good one. The next episode you and I do about this could be like world war one to world war two. So I think you're, you're at the question of, yeah, yeah. You're at the question of 14. I mean, 14 there, there's one small, I guess there's one small, story between that 1908 and 1914 uh, time mark in history that doesn't really play to the advancement of the automobile technology, but rather advertising the automobile. 
that is the story of the world touring hub mobile. Now I'm going to uh, jump back real quick because as, as John said, you know, Bill Hera owned the Thomas flyer that drove around the world. You can still see that car today. It's at the national automobile museum in Reno, Nevada, the former Hera collection. Uh, they take care of the car. They still run it, still drive it. Uh, it's, it's an amazing car to hear run, to see drive. It's, I, I've had good fortune to see it many times and it's awesome. Uh, but in that time period between eight and 14 in 19, 19, late 1910, early 1911, a, a 1911 Hupmobile leaves Detroit and it's known as the world touring Hupmobile and it drives around the world, but it is not a race. It is not intended to be anything more than a publicity stunt and advertising for Hupmobile. They literally drive around the world hitting every major city they can, sometimes backtracking or crossing their own path to drive around the world and show off the Hupmobile to anyone and everyone they can. And they go to parts of the world where no one has ever seen an automobile. There's some great photographs of the car uh, with aboriginal tribes in in different areas not only australia but you know um some parts of um different you know asian uh, countries um you know up through some of the siberian areas i mean at one point there's there's a picture of them and and no offense to anyone here but with a a tribe of um you know people who would uh, do shrunken heads and and there's a picture of uh, an aboriginal tribe with with shrunken heads standing around the car it's it, so it's this is more of kind of a, a moment in understanding how to advertise the automobile and hupmobile basically pulling off the first self-promoted publicity stunt in automotive history by driving this car around the world and the interesting thing is the only problem they had was a broken, I believe it was the right rear axle shaft in Japan. And they basically took it out, took it to one of the Japanese swordsmiths and he fashioned a new axle, put it in and they were on their way. So that would be the one minor little jump that's not necessarily technology related, but publicity related for the automobile. And then of course, 1914 rolls around Oh, go ahead, John. I was going to say, I don't know where you were going with your 1914 there, but we, you know, we had already touched on 1914, and that was kind of where Henry Ford, uh, I don't want to say invented, but brought uh, the assembly line production to introduces introduced assembly line production to the automobile, and that, in a way, um, because my day job being in in a motorcycle museum. That introduction by Henry Ford was kind of the death knell to the motorcycle that made the car affordable, brought the car down to a price point similar to a motorcycle, because prior to that, cars were expensive and a lot of a lot of people could not afford a car and they chose to buy a motorcycle because it was a much more mode of mechanized transport. But once the car became affordable, the motorcycle kind of lost favor to it. And that's when we started to see the decline of the motorcycle industry and a lot of those manufacturers start closing and some of that technology go away uh, is just you know, Henry, Henry Ford killed the motorcycle 
by introducing a car that costs just as much as a motorcycle. And, you know, it's just kind of one of those forgotten things in, in, in the, in, in automotive history, but, you know, prior, prior, uh, the, I'm sure talking in circles tonight, I'm sorry, but prior to 1914, motorcycles were outselling cars. And after 1914, that lead quickly diminished and then went away where motorcycles became more of a novelty. Now, they did stay main transport for a lot of families. My great-grandmother, I've got a photo in my living room on my fireplace right now. Uh, My great-grandmother, when she was a young, young little girl, and the, their family transport was 1926 Harley FLH with a sidecar because they couldn't afford a car. But they were kind of not the norm in the late 20s by having a motorcycle as their main transport prior. You know, most people by then had cars. So that's just a little side thing that kind of gets forgotten, but is, you know, an impact to a whole industry. And that's, again, as technology evolves. Yeah, completely agree. And and I will say, I think we skipped one thing here, uh, which is 1912. 1912 was a very important year. Prior to, from about, let's say, 1898 till 1908, roughly, 1906, right in there, speaking of vehicles that are outselling other vehicles, electric automobiles outsold internal combustion. Uh, Electric vehicles were very simple to operate. You just had to have them charged up, walk out, jump in them, turn whatever the electrical switch for them was on, and you could drive away. But in 1912, Cadillac changes the game by introducing the electric self-starter for the internal combustion engine. You no longer had to hand crank the automobile, which was extremely dangerous. And that led to a major, major change in the sale of automobiles because now we have a vehicle that's safer to start with an internal combustion engine and goes back to, again, that you know internal combustion engines don't have really a limited range. You just have to make sure the tank is full of gas and they typically keep running. So 1912 is an extremely important year, uh, again, in a technological breakthrough with the electric self-starter. Very good point there, and we, we've discussed it in previous episodes all the way back to probably episode two in the podcast where we discussed, uh, you know, electric cars and how technology repeats itself, and, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a win with the electric cars back then. Granted, the battery technology, we've said, suffered, but, you know, they were much cleaner. They were much, you know, they were, they were silent. They didn't scare the horses. They were more accepted by society. Uh, not being sexist, but it's a true statement. Women liked them because they were operable by them because there wasn't the hand cranking. There wasn't the maintenance. It's kind of the same reason we like them today is there's no maintenance to them. You, you plug them in, they run, and there's really nothing on them to break other than maybe some wheel bearing. You know, 1912 killed the electric automobile. And they're, and they're capable of... And don't forget, electric cars are capable of space travel. I was going to say, 1912 uh, killed the electric car. 2012 kind of brought it back. Back, I'd really have to look. You know, I think we had Tesla by 2008, but and then you know, 100 years later, we're putting electric cars in space because we haven't put a gas station there yet. So we we did 12, we did 14, we went back to 12, we're back to 14, and. 
we're starting to progress. And I'm going to jump back since we're talking a little bit of technology. And I said we're going to end this right around World War One. Uh, there is an invention, and it's come into play multiple times in history. But in 1898, um, a guy named, uh, uh, forgetting his first name, General Wilson created uh, the pre-selector transmission. And the uh, and this this was a transmission I've described in a couple ep- a couple different episodes we've had. But the quick recap: you're able to choose the gear you want before engaging the clutch. It allowed things to shift easier. Uh, still, didn't come into big play e- even in the early portion of the the um, century. But we st- kind of started with Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, yeah, excuse me. We kind of started with Da Vinci and some of his drawings, which also included a, a tank. And that's also what Wilson is known for, is he created or invented the modern uh, military battle tank. So that te- car technology starts to creep back into war a little bit, and the pre-selector transmissions were commonly used in tanks. And then they became widely, uh, in the 20s, started to be adapted into buses and such. And then the pre-selector went on uh, kind of a version in the the cord and uh, then was very popular in automobile racing 50s and as I say we, we can go right all the way up to really the Porsche PDK and a lot of the um, paddle shifter transmissions now are really just an evolution of the pre-selector transmission but now all of a sudden I've jumped from 1912 to 2018 but but there, there's a little bit of technology there as we're encroaching and creeping up on World War One, and some of the stuff that, again, as we said earlier with uh, the 1770s, war creates and drives technology. Yeah, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm sure we're going to be wrapping up here in a moment, but you know, we're we're going up to World War One, but I. For the sake of talking a little bit about World War One and military history, the big thing to understand there is that World War One, of course, known as the Great War, uh, prior to World War Two occurring, World War One is unlike any war in history at that point because we now have completely new technology entering into war. And that is really basically the internal combustion engine. We now have, as John said, tanks, automobiles that can act as not only ambulances, but you know staff cars, uh, military transport vehicles. But the big thing, we have an internal combustion engine that's powering an airplane. And airplanes wreak havoc on the soldiers and the towns that are involved in World War One. And it's World War One is a major turning point in military history because of the impact that the automobile industry and the idea of the internal combustion engine and what it's capable of has on war. Yes, yeah, the inter and the you know you gotta remember the internal combustion engine, you even bring the motorcycles into play on that one. I hate harping on motorcycles again, but World War One is the end of the cavalry as as such because the cars and the motorcycles and the tanks all replace the horse. 
and it's again, as I've said three or four times in this episode, the technology is just there. And uh, all of a sudden we've entered that, this, this point in time with all, all new mechanisms of war to scale it up, you know, beyond anything the world had ever seen before. And we have yet to probably see that change in technology again with except for the except for the brief ending of uh, World War II, there hasn't been, I think, as a radical change of techno- warfare technology um, as World War One. It's almost as the you know go all the way back to the beginning of the car and the American Revolution, the guerrilla warfare that the Patriots used uh, against the British, and not the regimented walk up, stand in a single file line and firing. We change, we changed the, the world of warfare there. The automobile changed or the internal combustion engine as Derek kind of spread the, the canvas changed uh, warfare in world war one. So is, do we see any huge changes in world war one? I, I kind of want to get us through world war one and then we'll wrap the episode up and, uh, We'll go ahead and, and, like I said, sometime in the next couple of weeks and that, Derek and I will sit down and talk about automobile technology uh, from World War One to World War Two. There's a lot that happened in those 20 years as opposed to this first 200 or 150 years of the automobile. Yeah, I mean, there's not really if you as you get through World War One and especially in in the American automobile industry, we don't see major major advancements. Of course, we're in World War I for such a short amount of time as the US. You know, there's there's not a lot of driving industry uh, around the automobile and things like that, like there will be when we get to World War II, that affect the development of the automobile. And it really, some of those changes come sh- really shortly after World War I when we start seeing some advancements in technology uh, for specifically the internal combustion engine to develop the automobile a little further into what it becomes. Oh, with that little bit of a teaser, I think that might be the ideal spot to wrap up this episode. I think we've really got into uh, some of these details and nuances of history of the automobile. And like I said, I would have always picked this up at 1886, but we went ahead and jumped it back to 1770. And if not, you know, even going far back as Da Vinci and some of his radical ideas, which amazingly over five, of course, of 500 years have become true. I'm going to say, go ahead. Like I said, at the beginning of the episode, send us some more topic ideas and that we hope to have Will back joining, joining us next week. We should be on our regular release schedule with episodes coming out. Should be in your, um, podcast catcher, whatever that would be, whether it be at Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Sound, uh, SoundCloud or wherever you're listening to your podcasts, they should, these episodes should be landing again regularly on Monday mornings. Be checking us out on Facebook and Instagram. And I don't know, anything else from you, Derek, for tonight? Or let's go ahead and wrap this one up and see where we go. I think we're good. Yeah, I think we're good. I hope everybody enjoyed it. Uh, Hopefully everybody wakes up now and uh, goes on with the rest of their day. So uh, can't wait for the next one. Thank you, everyone. We'll talk to you in a week.